The famous diarist Anne Frank once wrote, Parents can only give good advice or put them on the right paths, but the final forming of a person's character lies in their own hands. Anne Frank was stating that every human being must take responsibility for their own behaviour. A stark point considering the Holocaust that she was living through. Since then, however, the musings of this confined teenage girl have become the mantra of our day. Our world is obsessed with personal responsibility. We want politicians, sports stars, young people to take responsibility. When something goes wrong, there is an immediate hunt to find the man or woman personally responsible. Think about it. During the pandemic, there are posters everywhere urging us to wear masks and wash hands to take personal responsibility to prevent infection. In every park, dog walkers are reminded they must take responsibility for their dog's toilet habits, else there'll be a fine to pay. In sport, we're only 12 games into the season and six Premier League managers have already been sacked. They've been found responsible for their team's poor performances. In politics, while vulnerable refugees are drowning in the channel, there is a game of political ping-pong being played between the British and the French as to who is responsible for these poor people and at what precise point on the map that responsibility changes. It's true. The more we think about it, the more we realise that our society is obsessed with making people responsible. It's what every adult strives to tell their children. It's what every mentor insists for the improvement of their clients' future prospects. Indeed, if you type personal responsibility into Google, six out of ten of the hits on the first page are from life coaches about spelling out the road to success. You must take responsibility for your life and your decisions. So personal responsibility. We all understand it. We're all encouraged to take it. It's perhaps the defining refrain of our individualistic, success-driven world. We know what it means. And that's good, because here is a parable all about personal responsibility. And as we know full well what that means, there's going to be no squirming around its challenging message. The scene for the parable is an ancient Near East wedding. And the characters within it are the local girls who, according to custom, escort the bride and bridegroom from her home to his for the great wedding feast. Now, these girls are not like our Western bridesmaids who are all carefully chosen as family and friends. These are 
just virgin girls from the local village. In Israel, everything is done in community, and this is their way of joining the celebration. So we do not know whether the bride and groom really even knew these girls very well, but what we do know is the role they had to play. They had to escort the wedding procession. And because Israeli weddings are lavish events that go on long into the night, they would need torches to light the way. Back then, a torch was a a collection of oily rags wound round a stake. And they'd burn brightly for several minutes before needing to be doused in oil again to keep the flame burning. These girls then had a privileged job to do. They had to ensure that their lamps were ready and alight for the procession once the bridegroom arrived. And they'd want to do a good job, because later on in life, similar girls would do the same for them on their big day. So in order to be ready, they go out early and they meet at the bride's house. They're in eager expectation, keeping a keen lookout for the groom, their torches already burning bright. However, there is no way that these girls could be sure of his arrival time. Unlike in our Western culture, where the women are always late, faffing with their hair and makeup, in the Eastern culture, it's the men. So for this reason, five of the girls have come prepared for a possible delay. They bring an extra flask of oil ready with them. However, the other five have neglected this precaution. No doubt thinking, ah, it's not going to matter. The groom will be here soon. Unfortunately, though, that's not what happened. In fact, the groom was so long in coming, all ten girls fell fast asleep. I once did a wedding where the bride was over 40 minutes late. I literally saw older family members dozing in the pews at the back. Well, this delay was a lot longer than that. Eventually at midnight, that's right, midnight, this is some party, a great cry goes up. Maybe it was the anxious bride from within the house who by now is getting a little bit desperate as to whether he's going to come at all. He's coming. He's coming at last. Quick, everybody, get ready. And the ten girls, they stir and they stumble bleary-eyed to their feet and they urgently start to tend to their lamps. They'd have been pulling away at the oily rags that were burnt and crumbling and finding clean parts to douse with oil so they can light it all again so that the flames are burning bright. For the procession. But now suddenly the prudence of one group of girls and the carelessness of the others comes to bear. Those with no extra oil have nothing to kindle their flame with. And they ask the other five girls to give them some of theirs, but the five prudent girls respond that if they do, there might not be enough to go around. Torches burn very quickly. They would need all the oil they had. Surely it'd be better to have some lamps burning properly. In that way, they could at least light the procession for the length of it, rather than risking them all going out at some point on the way. 
So instead, they tell the others to go find someone who can sell you some more oil. Yes, it's midnight, but in Israel, everybody's awake when a wedding's on. And we don't know uh, where they went, or even if they were successful in finding any oil. All we know is that whatever they did, it took too long. And the groom swiftly arrives at the bride's house, and the procession begins, but with only half the girls. In fact, the procession has reached the groom's house, the venue of the feast, before the other five girls return. And the wedding party, they go into the banquet, and the door is shut. It's the middle of the night. They don't want intruders. They don't want great gate crashes at the wedding. So when the, the five careless girls return with their oil at last, it's too late. They hammer on the door and they plead to be let in, but all they receive is a curt response. The groom turns to them and says, I do not know you. Or effectively, I'm not going to let strangers into my door at this time and night. Remember, these are just girls from the village. And so the outcome then is stark. You've got five girls who have been gearing up all year for this event, getting excited, and they're into the banquet. And you get another five girls who equally have been excited, looking forward to it, but they miss out. They're left completely out in the dark, in the cold, and in loneliness. And as with many of Jesus' parables, there's a lot of down-to-earth wisdom to be gained here. How to survive in a dog-eat-dog world where no one shares. Perhaps there's even a lesson here about being generous to your friends. Don't be like the five prudent girls. Be kind. Treat others how you would want to be treated. It's all good wisdom. We could take that from this parable when we understand the context of it. But in truth, as with all the stories of Jesus, this parable only really makes sense when we understand the wider context of what Jesus is saying. And when we do that, the primary meaning becomes abundantly clear. If you have a Bible with you, you might want to open it and scan the preceding chapter, Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, you will find that Jesus has just been speaking about his second coming. In case you haven't heard about this before, one day Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to earth. He's not going to appear again as a humble baby in a manger like he did that first Christmas time. This time he is going to come as the great king of heaven. And on his arrival, the Bible says he is going to judge the world. And the Bible tells us that for believers, this is going to be a great day. This is going to be an awesome day. This is going to be the day when our faith, holding on by our fingernails, though it is at times, will be vindicated. And we will celebrate. It will be a day when all the sin is removed from the earth. It will be the day when death and evil suddenly are no more. Heaven and earth will join together. God's kingdom will arrive 
in full. This is the day of great salvation. This is the day that the whole of creation is groaning, waiting for. The Bible says all suffering will be over, all will be perfected. The day when Jesus comes again. However, for unbelievers, it will be a fearsome day. A day when they will have to face the consequences of their decisions. They will have chosen to live a life without God. And God on that day will grant them their wish. Away from the source of all life. Destruction is all that is left. And as part of this teaching in Matthew 24, Jesus said something really important about the day of his return. He said this, about that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. And that piece of news came with a repeated warning in the final verses of Matthew 24. He said, keep watch. Because you do not know on the day your Lord will come. He says again, you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. What Jesus is saying here is that no one knows when this day will be. No one knows when Jesus will return. When Jesus was on earth, even he didn't know. After his death and resurrection, he knew he would go back to be with his father. And then after a delay, he would return. And still to this day, Jesus' second coming, it's unexpected, it's unpredictable. But we know it will happen. We remember this in Advent because just as all those promises in the Old Testament were kept when Jesus arrived the first time, these promises too will be kept when Jesus comes a second time. We're not to spend the whole of our lives with a telescope looking up at the horizon. That's not what God wants. But he wants us to wisely be prepared for that day to come. Now that's Matthew 24. That's what happens in the verses just before our parable. But now you know that, look at the parable. In the parable, a master goes away much longer than expected and then suddenly appears. The parable contains great celebration, great feasting for the wise and the ready. And the parable contains tragic consequences for those who are unwise and unprepared. They experience the dark and the cold and the exclusion of a shut door. One thing is clear, when the bridegroom arrives, it's too late to change things. The preparations have to be made before that, while there is plenty of opportunity to do so. And Jesus really couldn't be any clearer. This story is thumpingly powerful precisely because it's so obvious 
And it's so relevant to just everyday events. It really hits home to us that Jesus' second coming could be at any time. We could be at a party. We could be at a wedding. We could be at a meal. We could be at a social event. We could be in a church service. Who knows? Are we ready? Are we prepared? Because if we're ready, great celebrations are ahead. We will be with the Lord. We can relax. But if we're not then there is a reason to fear. And in the parable, Jesus uses those chilling words for the unprepared. I tell you the truth, I don't know you. I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Jesus knows exactly what he's saying there. On his return, Some will celebrate. Those who've been hanging on to him, holding out for him, living for him, they will celebrate. But those who paid no attention to him, hardened their heart against him, walked away from him. I'm sorry the truth. I don't know you. In verse 1 of the parable, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. So the message of this power then is about personal responsibility. It is about waiting wisely for the second coming. It's about being responsible for our own state of readiness. In the parable, there's no reason to be unprepared. These girls, they had ample time to get the oil ready. Some of them had done it. The mistake was purely one of carelessness. Maybe they thought to themselves, well, we'll be all right. Our neighbours will give us some of their oil. Maybe that's what they thought. But the whole point of this parable is that only you can get yourself ready for the arrival of Jesus. You can't rely on anybody else to do it for you. It's down to you. Now, I'm not saying that we can save ourselves. Of course, I don't believe that. We all need forgiveness for our sin, a forgiveness that we can never earn or merit for ourselves. We are all equally dependent on the cross. But because Jesus has already died and he's already risen and each one of us in this room has already heard about that, we've had the opportunity to follow him. Jesus has already done all that we needed. And it's now up to us whether we respond or not. On Christ's return, we will not be able to say, well, my family has faith. I'm included with them, aren't I? On Christ's return, we we won't be able to say, well, I went to the youth club as a child. I attended the Thursday drop-in. They've got faith. I'm in with them. We won't even be able to say, as many of us do on our census forms, I live in a Christian country. I'm all right. No. To enter the kingdom, you have to take personal responsibility for your faith in Jesus. At this time of year, we remember how Jesus loves us How he loves us so much. He gave up the majesty of heaven to come to earth and rescue us. 
We remember at this time of year how the baby in the manger grew up to teach us all that we need to know and then died an agonizing death on the cross so that we could be forgiven, that we might have hope forevermore. Jesus has done everything because he loves us. He's desperate for us. He searches for us like like one sheep out of a hundred. He goes, he leaves the 99 and he goes to get the one. He loves us that much. But we are still left with the decision. Are we going to follow him or not? We are personally responsible for our faith. And over the next two weeks, we're going to have a look at what that faith is supposed to look like. But for now, the message is absolutely clear. We need our own flask of oil. We need to have repented. We need to have put our faith in Jesus. We need to have invited him into our life. We need to have chosen to stand up and follow him. And we need to be encouraging others to make the same response. Faith is that commitment to follow Jesus for the rest of our lives, come what may, and trying to do what he wants us to do. And I urge us, I urge us all to take responsibility and to do that. Turn to God in prayer. Consider getting baptised if you haven't already done so. Be prepared to share this news with your family and your friends. But get ready. Because when Christ returns to judge the world, to bring God's kingdom, we want to make sure that we know him. And he knows us.